from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll speak with local labor leader Jesus Salas about the roots and legacy of the farm workers movement. Then we'll explore how Milwaukee became known as the Cream City, an effort to preserve the city's cream-colored brick buildings. Cream City Brick really put Milwaukee on the map. It was sort of our badge of honor for a lot of the 19th century, um, and it's important to celebrate that. Plus, we'll explore how to research historic properties and neighborhoods in Milwaukee. Doing the research is something kind of mysterious to people, and it is a kind of tedious process, but it's not that complicated. And if you introduce the steps to people, you can watch as they begin to see, they now have a sense of what the neighborhood was like. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. We'll start with Jesus Salas. Salas is a noted labor leader who, as a young man, was inspired by Cesar Chavez and helped found Obreros Unidos, Workers United. The organization led a historic march from Watoma to Madison to demand lawmakers address the violations of the state's minimum wage laws and housing codes. In addition to fighting for migrant workers' rights, Salas also joined forces with other Milwaukee civil rights leaders, like Father Grappi and Vel Phillips, to advance even more community causes. Salas wrote a book that explores the roots and legacy of the farm workers' movement, and it's called Obreros Unidos. He spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski earlier this year about what he's learned from decades of organizing, starting with the impact of organizing families. The first four, three or four chapters of the book, were because of where I was situated in the workforce, we used to work in crews, like in the cotton fields, we were all segregated with the Afro-Americans. And uh, even here in Wisconsin, there would be different crews from different parts of Texas. So on the outside were the males, uh, our fathers, or the older males, and then uh, the unmarried women were towards the end of the crew, and then the younger uh, those of us, and we started out very young, as, as you noted in the book, uh, I was seven years old when we started migrating. We were towards the, the center with our aunt, my mother and my aunt. So the picture that I write is of women working, women and children working. That, that was my point of view from the very beginning. And uh, the other thing that I think that is mindful of the, it being a family uh, workforce was we would have never had a youth movement. We would have never had a, a, a women's movement grow out of the farm workers' movement if it hadn't been family-based. So, you know, I tell my brothers and sisters in the labor movement now, you have to engage the whole family. You can't leave the, you know, mom at home, you know. This is primarily a male-dominated labor union, uh, uh, labor unions. You know, the, the, other, the other thing that, uh, that I think is important in relationship to the family was the, um, what we call social unionism. In other words, we wanted to provide services. We won elections for a union contract in, in 67 after organizing 65 and 66. But Libby's wouldn't, uh, the, the company, the multinational that we organized, would negotiate with us. They moved all their operations out of state. So then we went into the processing plants, into Libby's uh, uh, canning company. So we went from the fields to the canning operations. And of course, I had been working with Chavez, Cesar Chavez, during this period of time. And he said, look, you've been at it almost five years. If you help me with a great boycott, 
uh, I'll help you with the um, with when in Wisconsin. Once we win in California, I'll come and help you in uh, in uh, Wisconsin. Who was to know it was going to take us five years to win the first contract in the Great Boycott? But here I come to Milwaukee in 1968. Of course, you know what was going on in Milwaukee in '68: the open housing uh, uh, marches, etc. Father Grappi and the Youth Council. But right. we kept on organizing families the same way that we organize in the field. So. The whole nexus of uh, organizing youth, organizing uh, women, I think that we, we had both, not only in the fields in central Wisconsin, but when we came here to Milwaukee also, because we never changed uh, our, our way of, uh, of organizing. Right. And on the note of Father Grappi, and there was a movement between you and the other leaders like Grappi, Chavez, also Val Phillips, to name one, where you combined forces of the farm workers and the civil rights movements here in Milwaukee. And that's very, very little noted. Uh, I was very happy to address those issues. And I call it the intersection between the civil rights movement and the farm workers movement. And it, I don't know if it happened by accident, but when I came to Milwaukee, Father John Maurice at the Archdiocese-funded offices at 524 West National gave me a back room to work the great boycott out of there. And lo and behold, that same summer of 68, Father Grappi is marching from the north side to Ellen Bradley, just several blocks down the, down the street. So I just walked over and introduced myself and... You know, that was the beginning. That's how it started. That's yeah. how it started. <laughs> and uh, he joined with us at the Great Boycott in uh, Capital Drive against Kohl's Food Stores when we started uh, expanding the activities into uh, accessing the University of Wisconsin here in Milwaukee. He joined us uh, there. And, of course, we joined together with the welfare marches. So I, I joined with not only Father Grappi, but I met Val Phillips and and uh, Orville Pitts. Uh, uh, Lloyd Barbie was a master of ceremony at one of our steel workers hall at that time. Uh, and then when we started, he started the lawsuit of the uh, uh, to desegregate the Milwaukee public school system. We piggybacked and and we we demanded the bilingual education and and uh, the hiring of uh, bilingual staff, et cetera. So yes, those things those, those things uh, intersected uh, the farm workers movement and the, uh, and the civil rights movement. It's a great pleasure to work with Father Grappi, to get to know Val Phillips and, and work with Lloyd Barbie in a desegregation lawsuit, yeah. Absolutely, what kind of lessons about strategizing and leadership did you learn from them when you were working well, with them? Well, it's interesting that you talk about lessons learned and you always, you know, no, if you keep your eyes open, you're always uh, learning. Uh, this is the first time I ever lived in a city, that first of all, okay? The, being a migrant worker, we've just lived in, uh, in not only rural areas, but in very small communities. So I was very apprehensive about living in Milwaukee. Of course, I can't, you know, I never survived the experience. I fell in love with it uh, uh, when I came here. But I recall Father Grappi, you know, uh, stopping over and watching us uh, organize at the Coles Food Store in uh, in, uh, on Capitol Drive, and and uh, he's telling me, he says, so you do a great job. You come out, you got all your, your leaflets printed. When the people come over, you give them the leaflet, don't buy grapes and that, you know, write letters to the growers so they will negotiate with the farm workers in California and that. But, you know, you got to apply a little bit of direct action. 
He says, well, what, what is that, Father Grappin? He says, well, you know, you've been, how many weeks are you going on now? More than a month that you've been here picketing, and still, you know, they won't take the grapes off, you know. I said, yeah, you know, we get real angry about that. Well, why don't you go over when the, the customers are coming in? Why don't you go over there and stop them <laughs> at the parking lot? Talk to them, you know, tell them to go shop someplace else. And that's what we started to do. We started adapting, and of course, uh, and then we went even further when we, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, committing civil disobedience as such, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, peaceful, nonviolent, etc. Good trouble. You know, good trouble, <laughs> yes, as a congressman would say. But uh, yes, we learned quite a bit. We mentioned Cesar Chavez before. He said something along the lines of there are no natural-born leaders. Would you agree? Do you consider yourself oh, a leader? No, there, no, no. Well, there are people that have certain skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think people uh, associate oratorical skills with, you know, having the ability to be able to consider, but not necessarily as such a right out of college. Well, my sophomore year, and for the next three years, I worked uh, uh, organizing children, trying to get their, their parents to, uh, you know, uh, send them to Las Escuelitas, the little schools. And the schools grew from one demonstration project that's uh, 1962 to seven centers uh, all over central Wisconsin. So here I'm going back to Texas uh, to recruit because there was no bilingual faculty, and we needed at least one bilingual faculty in each of those seven centers. So I had no authority to hire anybody. But the long and short of it is the United Migrant Opportunity Services, which is still going on right now 50 years mm -hmm. later, get funded to provide child care, but in southeastern Wisconsin. So not only had I been a, a, a farm worker and all the people, I, when I was organizing, people knew my background. And then when I, went, when I went back into the camps to organize the daycare centers, it was to convince the farm workers that this is what we should do to improve our working and living conditions. That was a task. Uh, it wasn't that I had no abilities or that, you know, but it was just, a, how do we do this? And of course, I was new to it. Uh, the very first strike was uh, a disaster, and I take full responsibility because uh, we got caught. Uh, we got caught without a lot of knowledge about uh, how you conduct a strike, you know, get assigned the cards. And, you know, farm workers, like everybody else, they don't like to sign things if they don't know what they're getting into, you know, so things like that. And mm -hmm. many of them had never even voted before. So the following year, when we ordered an election, that was the first time and many of them had ever voted because the franchise, of course, doesn't come until, uh, you know, uh, uh, the early, uh, the mid-60s. So, yeah, there was a lot of lessons learned myself. So, Cesar is right. You, uh, uh, yeah, there's no natural born leaders. You have to be trained. And to convince the, uh, the police and the authorities, the law enforcement, that we were a peaceful, you know, uh, demonstration. And we, you know, most of the time we did, but it took some time. Uh, I had never been to jail in all the years, like four or five years that I was in the, in the labor camps. When I got to Milwaukee, I couldn't stay out of jail, you know, but just <laughs> every time we went out in the streets, you know, the sergeant would come in, that one, that one, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So so learning how to organize and then in turn learning how to lead. And, and how learning how to lead and learning how to live in a completely different environment, an urban mm -hmm. environment where... You know, the uh, we never had any any difficulties, any challenges, that kind of challenges in the field. Uh, uh, we were out by ourselves most of the time, and unless you know, the uh, uh, it wasn't until we got here that we had to adjust those uh, those issues, and they had to adjust uh, for us too. So uh, make adjustments for us too. So well. I mean, lots of adjustments, lots of decades <laughs> of action, lots of reaction right, yeah. and change. Right, and right. Um, 
Your book is not just about what you've helped move forward in the past. It's also about what's left to do and accomplish that's in front of us. So what are some key things you think need to change for Milwaukee's Latinx community to continue to thrive? Well, the uh, for instance, the University of Wisconsin at, uh, at Milwaukee could do a better job providing more extensive uh, hiring of the faculty. I know this is a, a bad time of the uh, fiscal year to be talking about that because of the present uh, legislature has not been very kind to funding the university, or even though you know, we've uh, at the University of Madison, we've uh, kept tuition frozen for some time and then the children qualified uh, applicants of undocumented have to pay out a state tuition. When I was a member of the Board of Regents, we convinced the chancellors to provide some assistance to them. And then I worked with Governor Doyle to uh, pass an in-state tuition for what we call the Dreamers. And then uh, uh, Governor Walker, when he came in in 2010, not only takes away our right to organize uh, as public employees, but takes away the uh, right of the Dreamers to uh, pay in-state tuition. So it's a big gap that needs to be remedied in Bosses de la Frontera. I'm still active with them to see if we can remedy that. The driver's license, that was just punitive. There was no reason. If you believe in safe roads, there shouldn't be anybody out there driving without learning how to drive and and the fact that you have a whole community uh, because they, they simply haven't uh, processed their documentation. Two political parties haven't been able to come together and resolve some of the issues. Look at the border, that is, uh, the issues that are going on right now, and uh, look at the, uh, at the idea of, uh, of inclusion and diversity in our colleges. And uh, the legislature just said $32 million at the University of Wisconsin are not going to be funded for this. Diversity and inclusion is not solely about uh, including African-Americans or uh, Latinos, or in other words, a minority issue. It is about all. So those are the things I think that are still out there that weren't there when we were organizing uh, uh, that still need to be addressed. And it uh, takes all of us, takes a whole community to respond to that and to uh, uh, delve into these issues and find out what's going on and to uh, be critical uh, about the issues that are uh, on the table as such. Jesus Salas is a noted labor leader and the author of Obreros Unidos, The Roots and Legacy of the Farm Workers Movement. He spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in October. Many of Milwaukee's historic buildings are made of a milky yellow brick, giving it the nickname the Cream City. The masonry blocks are a sense of local pride for Milwaukeeans. But why? And how did they get here? Lake Effect's Excret Nunez speaks with historic preservation planner Andrew Stern about the history behind Milwaukee's famous bricks. As someone who moved here a little less than a month ago, I've heard Milwaukee be referred to as Cream City. How did the city get this nickname? So the Cream City name... um, developed because of the multitude of cream brick buildings that were found throughout the city of Milwaukee um, and southeastern Wisconsin in the 19th century. The the brick-making industry was very large here, and we had some very prominent um, businessmen, George and his brother John Burnham, and they had brickyards on the south side of the Menominee River Valley that produced millions and millions of bricks 
they really started kicking it into high gear in the 1850s, and then their business lasted in the valley um, through the rest of the 19th century. Their children ended up um, becoming brickmakers too. But the the brick that was produced there, as opposed to a, a red brick, was a soft cream yellow color. So when brick buildings were constructed, they used their local brick and just the multitude of buildings that were going up were cream-colored, and Milwaukee developed the nickname of Cream City based on the the number of brick buildings that we had here. So that kind of leads me into my question of why did the city rely on using these like soft, cream-colored bricks for its buildings and not the average red brick? Because of the clay that is found in the Menominee River Valley and, and along Lake Michigan, the clay found here is higher in magnesium and calcium. And when that burns, it dilutes the effect of the red iron that's found in the clay. So the clay is fired very hot and it produces a cream-colored brick. And in the 19th century, before the railroads were here, it just would have been really unfeasible to ship bricks. Um, So that was our local product and we embraced it, we loved it, and it really brought a lot of attention and renown to Milwaukee and helped us develop this identity. People would come and visit and then write home about this beautiful yellow city and uh, it really kind of helped put Milwaukee on the map as the city was developing. That's really interesting. And so does its history primarily have ties to Milwaukee or do other cities in Wisconsin and beyond have a history of its own using these bricks too? Yeah. So Milwaukee had the largest industry um, that produced the Cream City bricks, but we also shipped millions and millions of these bricks first to the East Coast and then later with the development of the transcontinental railroads. A lot of Western cities would use the Milwaukee brick as a facing brick and there's evidence of a number of the bricks being sent to Chicago following the Great Fire down there. The cream uh, Milwaukee brick was used for a number of lighthouses along Lake Michigan on the Michigan side. It was used for a city hall in Utica, New York. Um, and there's also a, a funny story um, from one of the newspapers um, describing how the editor of the Albany Journal kept a single Milwaukee cream city brick on his desk for people to come and look at. And and the newspaper article was speculating that there would be orders of Milwaukee brick to Albany before long after people see what a fine product it was. You mentioned what the brick is made of. Is it still used today to build structures? No. By about the end of the 1920s, a number of factors helped kind of end cream brick production in the city of Milwaukee. Architectural trends had really changed by about the turn of the century. A lot of structures were starting to use marble and stone more prominently. Also, it was easier to get red brick shipped via railroad here, so a lot of red pressed brick was showing up in the city. Also, a number of the clay deposits were just exhausted by about the turn of the century, and the demand wasn't there for it as much anymore. Fast forward to today, where can these cream-colored buildings be found throughout the city? Yeah, they they are still around, obviously not in in the numbers that they once were. Um, It's amazing if you look at photographs of downtown from the 1870s and 1880s, like almost every building you see is a brick building. Um, So unfortunately, the city doesn't quite have that number of structures anymore, but there are some great locations to check out. I would say Walker's Point is a great area where there are a a number of large commercial and residential structures that are constructed of, of cream brick. And there's some really nice warehouse buildings down there that were constructed of cream city brick. Closer to downtown, the brewery districts, um, Schlitz Park and then the Pabst um, Brewery Complex, a large number, if not all of their um, buildings that were originally part of the um, part of the brewery complexes were constructed of cream city brick. 
But the cream sooty brick is kind of known for picking up environmental damage that could be in the form of algae growth. But definitely with the number of coal-fired power production and, and just method of heating homes from the 19th century, you know, through into the 20th century, um, if it hasn't been cleaned, those cream sooty bricks pick up a lot of the dirt and grime. And it's interesting to see a dichotomy of like recently cleaned nice shiny cream city brick buildings or or some that haven't you know maybe been touched ever and cleaned ever um old saint mary's church downtown on on broadway is a great example of a building that hasn't been cleaned and it really wears its cream city brick uh grittiness pretty well but then there are a number of buildings especially over at the paps brewery complex that have recently been cleaned and look pretty shiny and, and almost as if they were put up within the last couple of years Interesting. Um, I guess this is a question of curiosity. Is it difficult to clean cream brick? Um, it, it can be. You always want to use the lightest, most gentle means possible when you're cleaning a product like that. And you certainly don't want to blast it or sandblast it or anything like that. That'll take the hard protective shell off of the brick, which can expose it to the inside. Then it'll erode a lot more quickly. So you'd want to use water to start with, and then maybe some detergents. They, they have specific masonry cleaning products that can kind of, over time, over applications, sort of wash away some of the dirt and grime. Gotcha. And so I know that the Milwaukee Preservation Alliance and the American Institute of Architects Milwaukee held the Cream City Brick Symposium last month. Why is it important for this part of the city's history to be recognized? Oh, I think it's utterly important that it's recognized. I mean, like I said, Cream City Brick really put Milwaukee on the map. It was sort of our badge of honor for a lot of the 19th century. Um, and it's important to celebrate that and work towards preserving those that are still here so that future generations can can take a look and be like, wow, that building's been here for 150 years and it was part of our historic fabric and just celebrate the architectural history and the industrial history of the city of Milwaukee. Are there any current efforts to preserve cream-colored buildings throughout Milwaukee? Not not a citywide effort. Um, in order to have any sort of historic protection, a building would need to be locally designated at the city level. So just being placed on the National Register of Historic Places doesn't offer a protection against demolition. But if a building or buildings are locally designated, then anytime demolition would be proposed, it would need to go to the Historic Preservation Commission for review and discussion. But there isn't like a citywide ordinance that would protect every Cream City brick building in the city. Although, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a horrible idea to me, but I think politically it might be a little bit difficult. But yeah, it would be on the commercial building owner or the private uh, residential owner to be responsible for taking care of their cream brick buildings. Understood. And so um, in addition to working in historic preservation, I know you're the author of um, Cream City, the brick that made Milwaukee famous. What made you want to study the city's history with the cream bricks? Well, I grew up around here, and I always admired and appreciated the architecture and, and the cream brick buildings. And my family has a farmhouse that's been in our family since the 1850s. And the actual house was constructed probably about 1870, and it's a cream brick house, and I always loved it. Um, and then when I got to graduate school and it came time to figure out what to write my thesis on, I was like, well, cream city brick is really cool. Uh, and as I started to do research about it, I found that there there wasn't a ton of literature about Cream City Brick. There, were, there was a, a great essay that architectural historian and architect H. Russell Zimmerman had done in about 1970. And then there was another master's thesis from a gentleman from the University of Chicago that primarily looked at technical specific side of Cream City Brick. But I was like, wow, it's you know one of my favorite things and it's about Milwaukee and I love Milwaukee. Um, so I was really enthusiastic to, to sort of go forward with it. 
What's something interesting that Milwaukeeans might not know about its history with the cream bricks? Okay, so this is, it's kind of a weird story. I don't think it's like too morbid or anything. But apparently um, on the south side of the Menominee River Valley, there was an old city cemetery. It was a pioneer cemetery. And um, at some point, I believe in the 1860s, all, and I'll put that in air quotes, all of the bodies were moved to Forest Home Cemetery. And the Burnham brothers, John Burnham, acquired the property to use for brick production. Well, it turns out that not all of the bodies were moved. And uh, there are articles in the, in the local papers of, oh, uh, workers at the Burnham Brickyard discovered uh, another, another bunch of bodies in, in the brickyard. And you know, they're removing the, the larger bones that they can get out of there, but uh, the smaller ones, they're just grinding up to use as brick. And, and another article a, a couple of years later that was like, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're finding more, more bones in the, in the old cemetery. And it quoted, uh, it quoted an architect being like, yeah, I, I know that, that there are buildings in downtown where you can see the bones in the brick. Oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> I'm like, for people who are not like seeing me, my mouth was like, what? Um, that's crazy. I guess it gives a different meaning to, to bricks being the backbone of the city of Milwaukee. It oh might, actually, might actually be the backbones. <laughs> Wow. Um, this is, yeah, that was definitely very interesting. I'm not sure a lot of people know that, but. Yeah. It's a pretty weird story. So I guess next time if you're, if you're in front of a Cream City brick building, it might not be a large chunk of lime that's sticking out of the brick or it, it might be, I don't know. <laughs> we could speculate. We could speculate. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really appreciated this conversation. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thousand miles my sweet home Milwaukee. Andrew Stern is a senior planner of historic preservation for the city of Milwaukee. He spoke with Lake Effect's excret Nunez. You can also find a bubbler talk about Milwaukee's cream bricks at wuwm.com. The Barbie movie was a huge part of popular culture this year, and a renewed interest in the classic doll, including her origin story. Barbie is from Willows, Wisconsin, and that was confirmed in a series of books published by Random House starting in 1960, where it was confirmed that Barbie graduated from high school in Willows, Wisconsin. More on Barbie's Wisconsin roots in about 10 minutes. But first, we'll learn about pull tabs, a staple of tavern culture in Wisconsin. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. If you've ever been to a corner bar in Wisconsin, chances are you've seen a pull tab machine. They're a staple of tavern culture in the state, a form of light gambling that brings together families and friends while they share a picture and complain about the Packers. Writer T. Krulos explored the history and legality of pull tabs in an article for Milwaukee Magazine earlier this year. He joined me in March to explore the culture of pull tabs. If you had just moved to Milwaukee, you've never seen one of these machines before, how would you describe it? A pull tab machine. Um, they're found in a lot of bars across the state. And you, you put a buck into it, or five bucks, and then you get a game piece. And uh, you flip it over, and there's these strips on the back 
And it's a very satisfying feeling of pulling those strips, kind of unzip them, and you see if you won a prize. And it's not going to be a big prize, like you're not going to be able to retire from your day job, but they typically pay out a few dollars. The maximum you can win on one is $250. So it's this kind of a fun thing that friends like to do at a bar. You get a bunch of pull tabs, you sit there unzipping them, seeing if uh, anyone won. And a lot of times that money is just put into buying more beer or buying more pull tabs so you can keep playing. Full disclosure, I would say about a month back, I had friends who were in town, uh, one of whom is a Wisconsinite, loves pull tabs, and I did win a you dollar. Did. A dollar. I was going <laughs> to say, pull tabs. the most I've won is $2. So. Yeah. <laughs> which, which seems pretty standard, but uh, one of the things that your article got into right away, which I have never really thought about before, is... Why are they legal? Like, I, for whatever reason, this had never occurred to me. But, yeah, it is odd that they are legal. Yeah, that's what started the whole story. My editor just wanted me to find out the answer to that question. And I found that the story behind it is pretty complicated, actually. Uh, it goes back to the late 90s. There was a guy named Walter Borer who was in the business of what they call coin-operated amusement machines. So he provided pinball and jukeboxes, stuff like that. And as sort of his retirement plan, he came up um, with Wisconsin Souvenir Melcaps, which is the pull tab company. And uh, he created this by very seriously studying Wisconsin Statute 100.16. There are exceptions to gambling in that. You can create a sweepstakes, Right? So it is actually a sweepstakes. You can write to the company and they will mail you a game piece. But of course, most people prefer to play it at a bar while they're enjoying a beer. Um, the other thing is if you can attach your thing to something of value, and this is why if you've ever played like McDonald's Monopoly, that's legal is because you get some French fries along with your game piece. So Walter thought about this, and his argument is that on the front of the pull tab, there's a circular design, and that that design can be cut out and saved as a collectible pog. So that is sort of the loophole, if that's what you want to call it, is that you're actually paying for this collectible pog, not the game piece on the back, necessarily. So um, he had to um, go to court, because in the late 90s, he was raided, they confiscated his pull tabs, and he was like, no, no, you don't, because I actually put a lot of thought into this. So he went to court, and they admitted that, you know, he was in the right, and that what he was doing is legal. The Wisconsin Department of Revenue is a little skeptical of this uh, from talking to them, and they're like, come on, really a pog? But I don't know. I don't think it's a bad argument. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of POG collectors out there, but people collect vinyl and VHS tapes, and I'm people sure there's collect POG collectors all out there, People collect all kinds of things. I used to and still have a small collection of potato chip bags. <laughs> okay. See? Yeah. People love Weird to collect things. Different, <laughs> different things. Now, it does seem like there is a bit of fancy footwork in order to make them legal using this kind of idea of, well, you know, the POG, that, that, that's really this, uh, this is what people are buying. Uh, but as you say, it was fought out in courts, uh, pull tabs won ostensibly. Now, are, 
all pull tab machines today, are they all legal or? No. I mean, according to what I found, Wisconsin souvenir mail caps are the ones that are operating legally because they do follow those guidelines from statute 100.16. So other pull tabs that you see out there are probably not legal because, you know, they don't have that collectible feature. You also have to keep records of certain winnings. You have to clearly state the odds on your game piece. There's a lot of like little details that you have to follow. And some of those other companies are just kind of making like knockoff pull tabs, I guess I would call them. Hmm. It's interesting to think about that in that context, just because they're such a Wisconsin thing. I think they're also popular in some other Midwestern states like uh, Minnesota, for example. But uh, they are such a kind of cultural touch point. What do you think makes them so popular among people? I mean, I think it, it, it works so well in Wisconsin just because the tavern culture here is so strong. It's um, uh, most people spend some time hanging out in a bar. And uh, this is something to kind of keep your hands busy, something social you can do with another person. There is that thrill, you know, even when I won $2, I was like, <laughs> hey, I'm a winner. I won two bucks, you know. But but like you say, they're very popular here. They're they're even more popular in our neighbor. Minnesota is the biggest state for pull tabs, and um, and they do exist in other states. They usually have a different name. That's more of like a localized thing. But yeah, it's a big part of the tavern culture here in general. An interesting sidebar to the story is I talked to an artist who makes this really cool art out of discarded pull tabs. So he has friends that collect them at different bars, and then he carefully. Cuts out the icons. They have icons like, you know, slot machine fruit and stuff like that. And he makes um, these sort of uh, collage or mosaics, I guess would be the right word, where he will, um, you know, create a scene from a video game or a landscape or something. It's pretty cool use of old pull tabs. Definitely better than uh, crumpling them up and putting them in your pocket. Yeah. (laughs) Well, T, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. T. Krulos is a freelance writer based in Milwaukee. His article on pull tabs was featured in Milwaukee Magazine in March. The Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig, was the highest grossing domestic film of 2023. It also became a huge part of popular culture over the last year, inspiring memes and clothes. With renewed attention on Barbie, we thought we'd learn more about her and the doll's Wisconsin roots. So if you haven't seen the Barbie movie yet, there's some very mild spoilers I'm about to share with you. But don't worry, it's just for the opening scene. Since the beginning of time, since the first little girl ever existed, There have been dolls. But the dolls were always and forever baby dolls. Until... Enter Barbie. Towering over a group of little girls playing with baby dolls, introducing them to the possibilities of play. Dressed in an iconic black and white striped bathing suit, her blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail, with gold hoop earrings and a pair of white sunglasses. 
This was the first Barbie doll that was introduced at the International Toy Fair in 1959. If you want to see a similar Barbie doll model, you don't have to go far. The Wisconsin Historical Society has one in their collection. To share more about the doll and where it came from, I'm joined by Abby Norderhow, Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. Abby, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for speaking with me. Yeah, thank you so much. So you actually have one of these original models in your collection. Where did this Barbie come from? So the Barbie doll that the Wisconsin Historical Society has in their collection is from 1961. So it's a little bit different than that original. Um, The primary difference being that our Barbie has pearl earrings and the original has the hoop earrings. Um, So the Barbie that we have was purchased by Orville and Francine Fox, who lived in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And they actually purchased that Barbie specifically for their granddaughter, Beth Fox, so that when she came to visit them from Madison, she would have something to play with. And Barbie apparently has some Wisconsin roots. She's supposedly from the fictional town of Willows, Wisconsin. Do we know any more about this and her Midwest origin story? Barbie is from Willows, Wisconsin, and that was confirmed in a series of books published by Random House starting in 1960, where it was confirmed that Barbie graduated from high school in Willows, Wisconsin. However, the story has changed a little bit over the years in Barbie Dreamhouse Adventures, which was a television program. um, The story was changed so that Barbie moved from Willows, Wisconsin when she was eight years old to settle in Malibu. We don't know where Willows is in Wisconsin, um, but it's sort of the idea that Ruth Handler had when she created the Barbie doll was that every girl should be able to see herself in Barbie. So centering Barbie in the Midwest and in a small town makes her very accessible. And when Barbie debuted, it was two mixed reviews, honestly. So what were some sort of the concerns that, you know, everyone from doll buyers to even the heads of Mattel had? Barbie was a really unique product when she was introduced. At that time, most dolls aimed at little girls were baby dolls, sort of with the idea that it would let them envision themselves as mothers and let them play in kind of a caretaking role. And the idea of Barbie that Ruth had was that Barbie should be what any little girl could envision her future to be. So having Barbie as an adult rather than a child made little girls think about their future and think about what they could be when they grew up. I think it's notable because Ruth herself was a female executive at a time when female executives were fairly uncommon. And so she was giving girls an avenue to see themselves maybe in a business role or in in one of the many other careers that Barbie has had over the years. One of the main hurdles of the design of Barbie was the fact that she was mature, that she had breasts, that she had long legs and, you know, was something that made obviously all the male executives uncomfortable. And Ruth was trying to explain the concept and she came across uh, something called the Lily doll in, on a trip to Switzerland in the summer of 1956 that kind of modeled what she was trying to conceptualize. Can you explain a bit more about the Lily doll and why it's significant in Barbie's origin? Sure. So, um, Ruth Handler had noticed that her daughter preferred to play with adult women paper dolls rather than baby dolls. And then she was on a trip in Switzerland and came across this Lily doll, which was um, an adult, an adult female doll. And she had her daughter with her at the time. And both she and her daughter were sort of captivated by this doll and the possibilities that there were there. Um, So she bought one of those dolls and brought it back with her and used it as a model to make to make the modern Barbie doll. And that that idea of an adult female doll with an adult female body was was new at the time and I think was probably hard for people to accept and to um, envision such a change in what kids were playing with. And while Barbie has had several different careers in her lifetime as a toy, this first Barbie doll was primarily for the fashion accessories, right? 
Absolutely. So the Barbie's first career was as a teenage fashion model. And one of the things that's really interesting about Barbie and that Lily doll that it was based on is that Barbie, you could purchase individual outfits for her um, and really expand your collection that way. Whereas the Lily doll, you had to purchase a new doll to get different outfits for that doll. Um, Ruth talked about seeing a Lily doll in a beautiful ski sweater and realizing that in order to get that ski sweater, you had to have a whole other doll. So her idea was that making the clothing interchangeable and selling it separately would really allow for more avenues of play. And talking about those other clothing accessories, what other clothing items are with this Barbie in your collection here that you have? This Barbie has a couple other outfits, mainly party dress style outfits. Um, So a couple different pink longer dresses, a skirt. Um, One thing that's really interesting about the Barbie we have in our collection and Barbies in general is the homemade clothing. Um, It used to be so much more common for people to sew their own clothing rather than get it off the rack at a store. And we see that in our collection as well. So we have some commercially made Barbie clothes as well as Barbie clothes that people sewed for their, their dolls to kind of customize their looks. So along with Barbie's popularity as this doll made its footing in the toy world and in popular culture, there was and still is some criticisms of this iconic doll. So what are some of the main negative perceptions that Barbie has? Obviously, one of the main criticisms of Barbie is her body shape. It's not a realistic woman's body shape. And there's been thoughts over the years that that might contribute to um, to girls and women feeling badly about their own bodies. Um, she's also often blonde and the first Barbie was white. It wasn't until um, the 1960s that there was an African-American Barbie doll. So she doesn't necessarily represent all people in that way. Um, There's also been some criticism that the initial African-American Barbie was still the same um, body and face mold as Barbie, just a different color. Um, And so although Barbie strove to be more equal early on, it wasn't um, It wasn't with a different model that might um, more reflect what different folks look like. And the Barbie design has changed over the years as well, uh, while trying to remain somewhat recognizable to this original doll that we're talking about today. But one thing that Barbie has maintained over the years is her independence. And and what are some of the other positives that are associated with Barbie? Sure. Well, Barbie Barbie and Ken have never married. So Barbie has remained an independent woman um, since 1959 when she was introduced. Um, I think some other positives of Barbie are that imagination. Barbie has had so many different careers that different girls and children can envision themselves having. Um, She's also been an avenue for imagination and exploratory play. So really letting people open up their imaginations and think big about their future. Obviously, the Barbie movie by Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie has added to this conversation about this toy and what it represents. So for you personally, how do you see Barbie And how do you appreciate this artifact from the Wisconsin Historical Society? I had Barbies growing up, so I've always had a soft spot for Barbie. Um, One thing that I think is really interesting about the Barbie in our collection is the way it it tells the story of childhood from 1961, and it connects so concretely with childhood today. Um, It shows how Beth Fox was playing with her doll. If you look at the Barbie, we have her hairs in a French braid. She's had her clothing changed. So you can see that this Barbie was used and played with. And it really shows how how Beth interacted with her and how she enjoyed that doll. And I think when you look at Barbies today, you still see that, that kids are using them to play and tell stories with. Um, Kate McKinnon's character of Weird Barbie is a great example of that, where um, 
you know, the, the weird Barbie has been drawn on and clearly used and loved by a child. And you can see that in the Barbie that we have in our collection. Abby Noderhow is the Director of Acquisitions and State Archivist for the Wisconsin Historical Society. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski in September. We'll tell you how you can find out everything you want to know about historic homes and buildings in Milwaukee, next on Lake Effect, on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Do you live in one of Milwaukee's historic or old homes? Ever wondered how to learn about the history of a long-standing building in the city? Well, there's a way. I explored this question for Bubbler Talk this summer. Bubbler Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. We get a lot of questions about historic properties and neighborhoods in Milwaukee. Some people are curious about how their neighborhood came to be want to know more about an unusual home they've seen. Or they're curious about their own home's history, like Brian Mikeworth. He lives in the Town of Lake neighborhood near Bayview, in a Dutch colonial home that dates back to 1913. There are a lot of places to start this kind of research, but for former librarian Nancy Torphy, there's one that beats them all. 809 North Broadway, and it's where building permits are. You just march and go to the desk and say, I'm looking for, you know, 231 East Superior, whatever. And they will give you microfiche, and you can look at the original building permit for the house. Torfi was a Milwaukee Public Library manager and now leads a course through Historic Milwaukee, teaching people how to do this kind of research. So I took her advice and headed to 809 North Broadway, the housing authority of the city of Milwaukee. Hey, um, I'm looking for information on a historic address. Sure, what's the address? For Brian's privacy, we're going to keep that part a secret. Let me go ahead and grab the microphone and then you can go do your research. Thank you. Microfiche looks kind of like a photo negative, and they have a special machine that allows you to see what's on there. The microfiche covers whatever the city has on the property before the year 2000. Everything after that can be found online through the City of Milwaukee's land management system. It was amazing scouring through these old records, and I got a lot of information, like the names of several former owners who lived there in the 40s, 60s, and 70s. But I was still looking for more. So Brian and I met up at the Milwaukee Public Library's Central Branch. Hey, are you here for Bubbler Talk by any chance? The library has plenty of resources, including some digital databases. But most of these resources are only available in the library itself. The best place to find most of them is the Frank P. Zeidler Humanities Room. There you can find things like premises records, plat books, city directories, and the Sanborn fire insurance maps, which show in-depth information about homes and their construction. Reference librarian Heather Smith led us through navigating these maps. Pull this out carefully. I'll put it up here on the top of the case to spread it out and work with it. Okay, so this is a great overview of how the city grew. And it's just where populated areas grew up, where there were buildings close enough together 
that the fire insurance company wanted to be able to offer and to insure them for people. And you can track the urbanization of the Milwaukee area by this. It's going to be west. And there it was on this old map, the house, the garage, and his neighborhood. The maps cover decades of changes, and as new homes were built or streets were created, Sanborn would paste on these updates, creating a kind of collage that mapped the growth of the neighborhood. We also explored some plat maps, which show more rural areas in the 1800s. Heather pulled out a stack of large old books, all of which might include the town of Lake. Franklin, Greenfield. It's so different. It's so different to how we do maps, though. Yeah, they don't publish, they don't make them like this anymore. No. These maps look different to modern maps, with fewer streets or familiar landmarks. But some things stay the same, specifically the shape of the land and waterways. We pulled up a modern map on our phones, and after a bit of maneuvering, we found it. The plot where his home is now, and the name of the person who owned it. I think this, this is it. The J.C. Howard. So we have, we have geolocated. Oh, excellent. Almost where this dot is. J.C. Howard for whom Howard Avenue is named. Through Wistex, we learned that Howard was part of a wave of Yankees who settled in the lands around Milwaukee as the city was first developing. He arrived in the town of Lake in the 1830s and cleared timber to create his farm, where he grew apples, peaches, and pears. With just a bit of digging, the old town of Lake was coming into view. For Nancy Torphy, that's what this work is all about. It is a kind of tedious process, but it's not that complicated. And if you introduce the steps to people, you can watch as they begin to see they now have a sense of what the neighborhood was like. There are still a lot of questions about Brian's home that we could ask. And there are still a lot of answers to be found. But where you go next with this research really depends on what you want to know. Are you interested in learning more about the people who lived there? At the library, you can access Ancestry Institution on your computer. That's where I found census data, marriage, and birth records for one of the first owners of Brian's home, Katarina or Catherine Lazuski, a Polish-German immigrant who came here in the early 1900s. Maybe you're interested in knowing the name of everyone who has ever lived there. You can go through old city directories. Or in the periodicals department, you can find the City of Milwaukee tax rolls. Are you interested in learning more about the construction and architecture of a building? Check out the Wisconsin Architectural Archives or the Milwaukee Architecture Index. Everyone does this research for different reasons, but the goal is often the same. People are curious about where they live. They just want a sense of the neighborhood. And you get them started, and then it's like the world opens up to them and they think of all other sorts of questions. So what are you waiting for? Get digging and stay curious. For Bubbler Talk, I'm Joy Powers. And Bubbler Talk wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about the House of History, a project dedicated to sharing local Black LGBTQ history. Plus, we'll bring you the story of Dr. Kate Newcomb, also known as the Angel on Snowshoes, who inspired people worldwide. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.